it's good to worship with you. Um, it's also really good to study God's word with you. Uh, we're opening up to the, the last section in the Sermon on the Mount. We've spent, uh, what, the whole semester, really, studying probably Jesus' most famous sermon, his words to us. And um, I've, I've been thanked by many of you. It's, it's sure been, been fun to get to speak and share. But I also, I think it's important that we sort of pull back the curtain a little bit and, and, and make it clear how many people contribute to studying God's Word and kind of what it looks like for a family to study God's Word together. Um, I just want to publicly thank both, both Roman Wally and Gail Wyatt, if you know either of them. In, in prepping for this, they both provided really wonderful resources, just loving, reflective, deep um, insights into the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, virtually every single week I've, I've gotten to, to preach here, um, I've, I've spent an hour with Rick Hurst bouncing ideas off. I've, uh, thanks to my mom, uh, <laughs> she's heard basically every single one of these sermons before you did. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and if, if you are new to studying God's Word, I'd just say, you know, I've known the Sermon on the Mount for 20 years, and still... I mean, a part of, of coming close to God's word is talking to other believers, reflecting with other believers, allowing other people's insights to deepen my own. Uh, I want to publicly thank those of you that wrote a blog. You know, there are uh, 15, 16 blogs, reflections on the Sermon on the Mount. If somehow you missed those, they're on gracebiblechurch.com. There's a tab, blogs. And just really, really lovely insights, uh, maybe, maybe something that you didn't notice in Scripture there. Um, I also want to publicly thank Milt Dodson, who, who edited those and sort of coordinated getting them together. Christy Hurst assisted him in that editing. editing and uh, thank you. It's just, it's just been a blessing. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where it's so easy. You know, if you were reading that blog, you'd know if it was screwed up, right? <laughs> but sometimes it's hard to remember that the fact that it isn't is a great blessing. You know, it's kind of like people in the sound booth. Whoever looks to the sound booth unless there's like a mistake. So we probably need a, a round of applause when there's no sound problems for sound booth and also the slide people. You know, I mean, those, those who, you know, run the slides tirelessly and faithlessly and flawlessly, except when the guy up here screws up and like skips three points that he was going to make and so they've got to scramble. But I mean, there's so much. You know, Scott LeGraff actually um, takes the head on coordinating sort of what, what pieces are going to go when. Holly Chapman, make sure that the things in your bulletin, you know, are actually there and make some sense. And, you know, and there's just so many parts of the body that, that fit together so wonderfully. In this, in this time when we're, we're looking for a senior pastor, there are so many unseen parts where... Uh, you as the body have, have stepped in. I, I think of Ralph and Theta Busby with counseling. You know, there's this hidden part that pastoral work is that really you shouldn't know about and is so, so important. Uh, Roman and Amy Wally also involved in that counseling part. Bobby and Mary Austin in, in, in coordinating things between different groups. And it's just really a blessing to be a part of the family of God working as I think the family of God should.
So it's been fun. It's made my study of the Sermon on the Mount richer, just sort of a, a little bit of a, uh, of a look forward. So we're finishing up the last piece of the Sermon on the Mount today. Next week, we'll hear together the entire Sermon on the Mount. Remember, Jesus preached it in one chunk. It's all connected. And so it seems only fitting to allow God's word to speak for itself. And we get to celebrate baptism. So next week, we'll be uh, rejoicing there. The five weeks after that will be focused on Advent. The first two before Christmas will be focused on the first Advent. That's the first coming of Jesus. And you can guess what the next three are. The second Advent, the second coming of Jesus Christ. We rejoice not only because Jesus Christ came, but because Jesus Christ is coming again. And that changes everything. So, uh, as long as we're saying thank you. Thanks to Scott LeGraff for quarterbacking that effort. He's going to be uh, leading that, that preaching effort. But it's going to be fun. Uh, Roman Wally's going to be preaching in that series. Um, Michael Powell's going to be back for a week. I get, I get to preach a week in there. I'm just really looking forward to it. And um, I don't know, maybe you can't screw up, <laughs> you know, pick a piece of God's word. Let's study it together. But, but I'm really looking forward to this. I think it's going to be a rich series of pressing into God's word. But I really like this one, and we still get a week left. So open with me, if you will, to Matthew 7. This is the final piece. Jesus has preached this amazing, world-changing sermon. I'm not exaggerating. This is, this is the most written-on text in history, right? And he finishes with sort of four pictures, four warnings, okay, uh, the first one, you remember we covered two weeks ago, it's Jesus says, watch out for the broad path that leads to destruction. Look for the small path that leads to life. Then he says, watch out for false prophets. The second picture is, they look like sheep. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. He says, by their fruit, you'll recognize them. So the third picture is, does a good tree bear bad fruit? Of course not. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. And we're into the final picture today, which is two builders and two houses, one built on the rock and one built on sand. And sort of, if you were looking for one unifying theme between all of these different pictures, it would be this. Jesus is saying don't be deceived. In all of the pictures, can you see, nobody like intentionally says, gee, I'm going to like invite a wolf to the party with my sheep, right? <laughs> that's not really what they plan to do. I'm going to walk down the road to destruction. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get. You know, wow, let me plant a, a really bad tree. Maybe I can get some rotten fruit. You know, the point is, the point that Jesus is making is don't be deceived there might be some sense in which you think, hey, this seems like a good idea. It's just as good as the other path, but it's not. And Jesus helps to illuminate that here. So uh, from Matthew 7, starting in verse 24, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. But it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. 
But anyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell with a great crash. And that's it. That's the end of Jesus' words. And so the, really the point, I think, is pretty clear. Hear my words, put them into practice. But somehow it's hard. Somehow it's tricky, right? I mean, somehow Jesus feels necessary four times to say, don't be deceived. Um, and I think maybe if I were to unpack this, if I were to sort of summarize it to someone, I would say, we need to know God's truth. That is essential. You know, Paul writes later on in the New Testament, you know, how can people believe if they haven't heard, we need to know God's truth, others need to know God's truth. But there's often sort of a step that I, I miss between there and, you know, okay, well, I guess I need to do this. God said to, I'm a Christian. And it's, and it's this second step, um, believing God's truth. Really seeing that God's truth is, is true, is good. Um, trusting in God's truth, maybe loving God's truth. Um, I have those three blanks in your, in your outline, in your bulletin. I, I sort of debated. I, I think probably believe is that second, but you might say believing or experiencing God's truth. And the truth is, in my life, when I, when I know God's truth and I sort of skip the middle step to, okay, I better sort of try and do this, so often it's this hollow, kind of ah, burdensome thing that doesn't usually end up working out well because I don't see that God's truth is good. Is it, it's true that he is a loving father that cares about us and wants our lives to flourish. So that middle step is believing, experiencing God's truth. And finally, we get to living God's truth. Living God's truth, and not just by ourselves, but in relationship. So hopefully you still have your Bible open to Romans. Romans, yeah, no. Matthew 7. The very verse before this that we studied last week ends with these words of Jesus, right? This is verse 23. He's saying to those who thought they belonged to God, away from me, you who practice lawlessness, I never knew you. Hold on, God knows everything, right? I mean, so it's not like God doesn't know he exists. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, I wanted relationship with you. I wanted you to be mine. I never knew you. And frankly, I would, I would extend that slightly more. It's not just relationship with God. God calls us into relationship together. And that's part of what I was trying to illustrate to start with, remembering what that looks like, us allowing God's truth to bear fruit in our lives together. Because the thing is about, about that really simple passage, you know, in, in verse 24, he says, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, you know, I mean, if you're studying this, you probably ought to look at that, puts them into practice, and sort of see what that is, and there's this weird thing. Do you know that 
the, the verb there, puts that into practice, has been already used five times in the past two paragraphs. And that doesn't, that doesn't quite show up in English. You know, there's sort of this translation challenge. I guess it's uh, poe is the verb. And it's something, it's something like produces, puts them into practice, um, and does. In fact, if you look back to the tree, this is, this is verse 17, it says, a good tree bears good fruit. That's actually the same verse he's talking about what our lives do. A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit, right? And in fact, when, uh, when those who think they belong to God but don't sort of make their justification, they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and produce, that same verb, produce many miracles, right? Hey, didn't we kind of do the right thing? And Jesus says, but I never knew you. What Jesus is saying here is you need to hear his words and your life needs to produce fruit from those words. Internalize, love God's word. Experience who God is and your life will produce this fruit. That's what it looks like to be this wise man. And I think it's, it's important to sort of pause there and to think about the visible versus the invisible. You know, I think the analogy of these two houses is that the houses look pretty similar, right? You drive down the street, hey, there's one house, it has shiny shutters. There's the next house, oh, it has shiny shutters too. And yet what's underneath makes all the difference. It's sort of like if you remember last week we talked about the sprout. It's really hard to tell the difference between one kind of thing and another kind of thing when it's just a sprout, right? But what's inside the DNA of the sprout makes all the difference. It's going to become something different. It's already determined what it's going to become. The foundation makes all the difference in building. So uh, I, think, I think it's useful to, um, to look at another passage where Jesus talks about this sort of same concept. Um, now, so, Jesus was a traveling preacher, right? The Sermon on the Mount, he was speaking to crowds and crowds of, speak of people in Judea. But really, throughout three years of ministry, he traveled all over the place, and he was preaching the same truth in different places. And so, uh, if, if you're interested, you might flip over to uh, Luke 6. Uh, I believe Jesus is in a different place. Now, just a, a little background. There, there are people who believe there's something called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. There's something called the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. There are people that believe, say, well, these are basically different people summarizing the same thing, but maybe just one of them got it wrong where Jesus was, was speaking. Well, frankly, if you believe Jesus' words, I'm not sure it makes a heck of a lot of difference where you think he was saying them. Personally, what I look at is I think Matthew said he said it on the side of a mountain, I see no evidence not to think he said it on the side of a mountain. Maybe, maybe I'm being too simplistic. Uh, you know, what itinerant preachers do is they go from one place to the next, and typically they say pretty much the same thing, right? And so we're going to read a passage. I believe it's a different day, Jesus saying very much the same thing. Very much like, so I teach math, right? Um, sometimes I go, uh, you know, don't tell the students this, but... <laughs> 
You know, when I go to uh, Central Heights and then I go to Woden and talk to a high school class, I pretty much use the same analogies, right? I pretty much use the same jokes. They're not good either time. You know, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's, so, so you're going to hear this. I sure don't think this is the same day and somebody just misremembered. I think this is a different day. Jesus is using the same story, and it, but it helps us to understand how Jesus is thinking about this story. This is in Luke 6, uh, verse 46. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. Sound familiar? He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but, he could, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. So I think what Jesus is talking about is, is exactly what he says here. One man dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. If you've ever been in the city, you know, in a downtown area, and they're building a 78-story skyscraper, first thing they do is they dig down two, three stories. And often, they are literally trying to set their pillars on bedrock. They're really trying to set their pillars on rock. And that is, in many ways, what the Christian life is about. You know, I think every person living wants to live a life that's sort of fulfilling, happy, joyous. You know, I mean, that's kind of like the shutters on the house. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is in love saying to them, saying to us, this is the path to having a house that is solid. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Remember back in Matthew 5? Blessed are those who don't pretend like everything is together. Blessed are those who mourn, who recognize, man, there are parts of me that are broken. Blessed are those who humble themselves, are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, I want to be right with God. Those are the people who will be filled. It is the people not who start up with the construction, but the people who deal with the unseen. In fact, the lowering yourself, saying, I don't have it all together, I'm broken. Not playing the game, going down and finding the right foundation. And Scripture has been really clear thousands of years that that foundation is one thing and one thing only. If you go back to Psalm 18, the psalmist says, For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? He will not be shaken. Isaiah 28, it's something that Peter quotes in the New Testament. Isaiah writes, So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay in Zion a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation, the one who relies on it will never be put to shame. That stone is Jesus. Paul writes again after Jesus' death in 1 Corinthians 3, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Christ means Savior. 
We need a savior. We need someone who is solid when we aren't. And so I, I think, you know, sort of reading this, uh, Jesus is warning us over and over again, so probably I would be foolish not to say, well, Jesus wants me to make, make sure, how do I know my foundation is on the rock? How do I know my foundation is on the rock? I know I'm supposed to humble myself. I know it's about what is unseen about that foundation. How do I know my foundation is on the rock? And I have a two-part answer for you. Number one, you know if you've submitted yourself to Jesus Christ as Savior and Master. Jesus wants to be your and my Savior. That means a couple of things. It means I need saving. Frankly, if you don't need saving, you don't need a Savior, right? It means recognizing that I can't be who I long to be. I can't do what I long to do. I am broken without Jesus, who is the Savior. And the second part there, submitting to him as Savior and Master. The Master is the one who gets to tell you what to do. And becoming a believer, becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, means submitting to Jesus as Master, as the one who gets to tell us what to do. It comes back to believing God's truth. Not because it's burdensome, but I have to put up with it, but because he loves us and he understands. He is a good master, far, far better than anything else you would ever serve. I said there were two things. One is submitting to Jesus as Savior and Master. The second is really doing number one. Yeah? And that's what Jesus is saying over and over again. He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, right? Master, Master. And he's going to say what? I, you didn't do what I said. I mean, you didn't submit to me. I didn't even know you. Really, honestly, with our whole being, submitting to him as Savior and Master. The thing about Jesus is this. He really wants to be our savior. He really wants to be our master. Um, in, in Revelation 3, the last book in the Bible, Jesus says these words. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus wants us uh, I'd, I'd love to chat more about the context of Revelation 3. Read it sometime. But Jesus loves us. He's knocking at the door. He wants to save us. The only path to that is to recognize we're broken, to humble ourselves, and to hunger and thirst for what he has to offer. And that is, that is the sort of thing that might not be blazingly obvious, you know, in sunny weather. In sunny weather, you know, you put up two houses right next to each other, and they both have shiny shutters. Uh, say that real fast. Shiny shutters, shiny shutters. Uh, but it's in the hard times, really, that that becomes blazingly evident. And I had um, 
I had uh, various things that I was going to say to you about that. I was going to remind you the water bottle, right? Um, right? How do you know what's inside the water bottle? It's when it's shaken. It's when it's squeezed. And your life, there will be times when you're going to be squeezed. And it is God's kindness, God's absolute kindness, to let us be squeezed, and let us see what's inside, and run to him. He desires to change the foundation. He desires to be Lord and Savior. And it's those moments, if we can look at them as not horrible inconveniences, but times of loving revealing of what is inside, to come back to the one who is able to change. But um, all, all my pictures and such sort of paled in comparison to this morning. Um, uh, I saw Todd Whitehead. You know, usually he's up leading worship with us this morning. And I, my first words to him were joking. And he looks at me in the eye and he says, I think Robin, that's his wife, I think Robin's father and brother died last night. And it's sort of like, <laughs> well, guess the joke's over. Um, and uh, I got the call maybe an hour and a half ago. Yes, they, they found the second body. It was a, uh, I think they call it a gyrocopter. It's halfway between a plane and a helicopter. It was a crash and a fire, and they're gone. There will be hard times. And that's not, you know, uh, Gene Cagle and Roman and I got the privilege of going to pray with them, you know, before this service. That's not time to figure out where your foundation is. <laughs> it's a little late. You know, now, now, the Lord is so gracious, right? I mean, he will help you in the hard times, but it was so good to pray with believers. You know, Robin is, is racked with grief, her sister-in-law, and we're going we're gonna to pray for them in just 30 seconds or so. But, you know, her sister-in-law now gets to raise two daughters. Her sister-in-law's name um, is Patty, if you want to pray for her gets to raise two daughters alone. You have the opportunity to build that foundation now. You don't know when you're going to need that foundation. But I can tell you what the one foundation that is solid is, and that is Jesus Christ. That is the thing that will not shake, the one who will not shake when everything else shakes. That's weighty. But I think that's what Jesus is talking about. I think he's talking about when the hard times come, because they will. The best house and the worst house had the same thing happen. The rains came down, the streams rose, the wind beat against that house. Where the foundation is makes all the difference. We're going to pray. Uh, Robin's mother's name is Kathy. Robin's sister-in-law's name is is Patty. Lord, we do lift the whiteheads to you. Lord, you are never caught by surprise. You are never overwhelmed. You are always sufficient, even when our words aren't. Please be with the whiteheads. Care for their family. Comfort Kathy. Comfort Patty. Comfort their daughters. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would provide people right now for their family. 
I pray that you would, you would allow us to be loving to the Whiteheads, but even more to those, those families that lost a daddy, lost a husband. Oh, Lord, I thank you that you promise that you are a father to the fatherless, that you care for the orphan and the widow. Lord, I pray that you would make yourself real, that they would know your peace that passes understanding. And Lord, I pray for your church, that your church would stand up and be the church to this family, that they would love them in a tangible way with your love. In Jesus' name. There will be hard times. And I think it's appropriate to sort of transition to the words Matthew uses to sum up the entire Sermon on the Mount. I think, it's, I think it's pivotal. So Jesus has just finished talking only for like 20 minutes. Don't you wish a pastor would only preach for 20 minutes? Um, and this is, what, this is what Matthew says. Uh, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as they're teachers of the law. There is something special about Jesus' words there. And these people, you know, some of the people in his audience were religious scholars, right? And they, they spent their lives digging into holy text. And probably the vast majority of his audience, certainly the vast majority, was illiterate. And yet somehow they were amazed at his teaching because God's word has authority. God's word is powerful, and God's word is effective. And I think the closing of studying God's word together, we have to remember the power of God's word. You know, it says in Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. God's word is profoundly powerful. And God gave it to us, not just so we could know it, but so that we could experience it, so that we could believe it. And that makes all the difference. You know, we believe in a God that's three in one. We believe in God the Father. We believe in God the Son. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, who the Lord sends to live inside of believers. And the Holy Spirit is wonderful and powerful. But there is this really important relationship to understand between God's Word and the Holy Spirit. You know, the Scripture says no one can come to God unless the Holy Spirit draws him. And yet how many people have you known that have been drawn to the Lord, the Holy Spirit used God's Word to draw them? I have a friend, you know, he became a believer and within 24 hours, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit gave him the gift of the conviction of sin. And it is a gift, right? If you have a shoddy foundation, it is God's gift to say, get rid of that foundation. Let me build a foundation. Put your hope on me. That's what won't be shaken. And yet so often, it is the Spirit that convicts. So often, he uses his word to do it. And it's a beautiful thing. And choosing, choosing to hide God's word inside you. I mean, of course, you could Google any verse you wanted, right? I mean, you could get it. 
15 seconds, anything. But the, the point is there's something about knowing God's word. A bunch of years ago, I, I spent time really internalizing Romans 12, and there's this verse, the last verse of it. It says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you know how many times the Holy Spirit, I've been in a situation, it's like, oh, I'm on hold, you know, the person on the other end is telling me the wrong thing, or, you know, I'm at work, and, you know, I just want to, I just want to give them something. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit brings God's word to bear on my life, and I just hear pounding in my head. This has probably happened a hundred times. I need to hear it a lot. I, I don't think I'm exaggerating. A hundred times. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Your absorbing scripture allows the Holy Spirit to make it be living and active in your life in a really unique and powerful way. I asked a number of friends about the Sermon on the Mount. You know, what part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount impacted you most in the last semester? And I got maybe eight, nine different answers. You know, every single one of those answers was different. One person said, don't judge. One person said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, one person, I think, said, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Isn't it interesting? What is that? That's the word of God being living and active. The spirit putting his word to work in your life. And it's just so important. His word is so important. Just one last sort of picture from my own life. Uh, a few years ago, I was in a Kroger parking lot, and it's getting close to dark, and I really feel this tug from the Lord to help this woman a couple of cars down put her, put her groceries in her car. And it's like, this is a little weird. You know, it's getting dark. Yeah, I should, as a six-foot male, approach this, you know, single woman. <laughs> this is a good idea. You know, but, but somehow I know... I know God's heart. I know God's word. The point is that this would reveal God's heart. I know God's heart well enough to know, yeah, I probably shouldn't blow that off. That seems to be what God's heart, well, it turns out this woman, not only was she a daughter of the king, not only was she, you know, precious to my savior, she had palsy and it actually was just slightly painful, not slightly, quite painful for her to even lift a bag. The Lord knows. The Lord's able to provide. But knowing his word, now let's say you have an inclination the next time you're in Kroger to, <laughs> man, that, that purse is just left there in the bag. I could just grab that and run off. Well, yeah, maybe you could. Um, but obviously that wouldn't be consistent with God's heart. And our point, our point is to learn about our Savior. And honestly, that's my prayer for you, for me, that in studying God's word, in, in, in reflecting on the Sermon on the Mount over these months, that we would have etched on our heart what God's character is like. That we would know God's truth in such a way that you would experience, that you would believe God's truth. That God's truth would live in you. That it would produce fruit in you in relationship to Jesus and in relationship to one another. That is what a house built on a rock looks like. So let's pray. Let's respond to the Lord in worship. He is so worthy. Oh, Holy Father, you are good. You are like no other. 
You are a strong tower. You are a mighty fortress. You are a rock. And there is no rock like you. Give us, give us the grace to come quickly to you. If there are those here who, who haven't ever su- submitted their lives to you as Savior and Lord, give them the grace to do it. Give them the grace to choose you as their foundation. And to those who have submitted parts and yet still hold out pieces, by your grace, reveal those pieces to us. Let us submit our whole beings to you. You are so good. You are so worthy of our trust. You are so worthy of our praise. We love you, Jesus. Amen.